did you know that Rachel Zegler, the lead in The Hunger Games, mm-hmm. originally turned it down? She did? She turned the part down. But she ended, She was the lead. So what and happened? There's a whole story behind that okay. that we're going to get to in this episode of Share Your Screen. Thank you guys so much for watching. Hello. Hi, I'm yes. Mickey. Thank you. I'm Kokomoko. And thank you guys so much for all of the ratings, the reviews that have been coming in, the mm-hmm. amazing comments on YouTube that give us, they give us video ideas. They tell us what they want us to talk about. And I, I, I love the community. Me too. We are going to today be talking about some Hunger Games lore. And just, there's so much interesting thing. One of my favorite things to research whenever new movies come out that are trending mm-hmm. and stuff is casting interesting it's so interesting to find out why certain people got cast like maybe who tried out and didn't get it totally i love those god i can't remember the name of the interview notes on a scene where it's the director um i think it's for like vanity fair where Mm -hmm. they like review the scene and they talk about like um there was one of jacob alerty and saltburn Mm -hmm. where she was essentially talking about like why I wanted this person for this role and stuff like that. Like, or like this was the scene that they had to do in their audition and stuff like that. I think things like that is so interesting in in the way that like you hear directors and actors describe their characters. What did the, did you see what they said about Saltburn? Cause I really want to see that movie. I want to see it so bad. She was just talking about how she really liked that Jacob Elordi was like a good at being a very normal guy. Cause the whole point of the movie is it's like somebody who's like very innocent, but then turned sinister and she felt like everybody was either like too innocent or too sinister. And she liked that he could like really toe this line of like, being, which I think is really true. If you think about like Nate Jacobs and Euphoria and stuff, like he kind of does, he's yeah. really good at that sort of. Uh, you feel bad. Yeah. Like, you know that they're bad, but you kind of empathize with them. Yeah. Yeah. Jacob Elordi also comes up in this podcast oh, episode. The Jacob Elordi, Rachel Ziegler comparison is very interesting. I've been mm-hmm. seeing so much discourse about it online yeah. and I'm very excited to talk about it with you. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to get into all of that. Now, before we get into casting, I do want to just give a little bit context into the movie because I've seen it. I know you haven't I seen haven't. it yet. Have you read the books? I haven't, but I really, after seeing the movie, I actually want to go back and read. I got all three of them in hardcover, baby. Really? Uh, you can did, have you, them. did you get the new one that recently came out? That's no, about I this only movie? read the, 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 the Hunger original. Games Catching Fire and Mocking Jay. Yeah, and Susan Collins is like, I mean, her mind, it kind of reminds me of the Game of Thrones world where. Even in Game of Thrones, the high Valerian language that the author came up with yeah. is a language that people... You can study learn. it. I think you can study it on Duolingo. Yep, same with... Uh, that's crazy. I'm pretty that's sure. That's everything. Can I'm we to learn sure. Valerian on Duolingo? Yes. The next episode will be in Valerian. In high Valerian, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the funny thing is I was at a convention at Ad Week in New York like last year and they had some of the people that worked on the Game of Thrones, the new show, mm-hmm. House of the Dragon... And they said that even when they had background actors like walking through the city scenes that were speaking High Valerian to each other, they were so worried about getting the language right, even for background actors, because the Game of Thrones fandom has become so obsessed with it that they can clock in scenes when characters aren't pronouncing certain words right or like high valerian isn't being grammatically spoken correct <laughs> that's and it's insane. a language that was made up 
But that is like such a, I don't know, like I kind of like when fandoms get that Me too. deep. It's so beautiful. I think my favorite part about any series is the world building. Yes. Like that's really what makes me fall in love mm-hmm. with a series when this, there's so much like lore to this even fictional world. Like, yeah. like I think something about like Game of Thrones and Hunger Games that's so interesting is that there's history to the story before the story even begins. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it's yes. the 75th Hunger Games. It's not the first yeah. Hunger Games. And it, this is like the 10th Hunger Games or whatever. And I, I just think that's so interesting. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That they're like putting you into this world that yeah. even predates like what you're reading. It's just so, it's, it's such a crazy way that people can even like write like that. I know that their mind is like that big and it brings people into the world. And we're going to talk about too the ending kind of, of the Hunger Games, and I'm not going to necessarily give... There might be spoilers in this episode if you guys really care about that kind of thing. Again, I'm also a believer in, like, if a book has been out for a while and the movie is based on a popular book, I'm like, yes, I'm going to be careful of spoilers, but also, like, just read the book if you, like, really, really want to know because I'm sure it's a great book. And also, I haven't seen it, so we're in it together. Yeah, and unpopular opinion, I love when people give me spoilers. I love spoilers, too. Why do I want to see a movie if I don't know if it's going to be good or not? Exactly. I I need you to give me the tea. Yes. Like, I don't need the whole plot, but just mm -hmm. give me that piping, hot, steaming little thing that's going to happen at the end, the sinister turn, and I want to watch the movie to figure it out. Yes, like if someone is telling me about a show, it goes in one ear, out the other. The moment they give me like a little spoiler alert and they tell me something that happens in a specific episode, I will watch it so intently to see the buildup to that moment. And I exactly. love spoilers. Exactly. This actually very explicitly happened with me with House of Cards. We don't see on Kevin Spacey. Yeah. But the show House of Cards, where the spoiler alert, it's been out since 2013. <laughs> yeah. Spoiler alert. Um, the main character dies in season one. And when someone told me that, I was like, oh, I need to watch it. Also, Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Is I was another one. Ned, Star- mm-hmm. uh, Ned Stark. Mm-hmm. I knew that Ned Stark died before I started season one of Game of Thrones. But that, like, was what made me watch it. Yes. It just, to me, it makes it so much more interesting to know what the stake is and what could what's going to happen because then the buildup. So yeah. the, the context of this is it's a prequel and it's focused on President Snow. Coriolanus Snow is his name in this series because mm-hmm. he hadn't become president yet. He's like a college kid or a high school. He's a student in the Capitol. And it's him going from kind of a little bit jaded because bad things happen to his family during the uprising, but he's still kind of optimistic and open-minded and empathetic. And then you just see him, like the devolution of his character by the end of the movie, where he becomes so like unhinged and angry at the world. So it's about that. And of course they casted like a, uh, the actor's name is Tom Blythe. And there's something so interesting about like British actors that play American characters. British <laughs> actors are better at playing Americans than American. <laughs> like they're so good. I mean, what do we do well? Uh, like Florence Pugh, for example, whenever oh. I hear her accent, I'm like, wait, she's not. Like, I just what? think we need to put Florence Pugh in every movie. Ever I made. know. She just needs a little cameo, a yeah, little scene. The frown Like face. she's carrying yeah. every role that she's in. Dune. When Florence Pugh enters the Dune franchise, Timothy Chalamet, Zendaya, and Florence Pugh in one movie. Oh my god! I'm gonna. I know. I'm gonna lose my mind. I know. Florence Pugh in um, Hello Darling, I think, or Don't Worry Darling. Mm-hmm. That was she such a good movie. Read that movie. And it was such a good movie, and it got so much flack because people were just like, I think 
so obsessed with Harry Styles, the singer acting in the movie that they, which I thought he did an okay job. And like, I'm sorry, that could be a whole other episode. Don't worry, darling was a really good movie. And I stand by that. I think so too. Yeah. This Hunger Games is a prequel about Coriolanus Snow. And he has a relationship with one of the girls, Lucy Gray Bard, who um, is chosen for the reaping in the 10th Hunger Games. And they're all assigned a mentor, which is like capital students. In the movies that we see with Katniss Everdeen, it's people Former that have won. victors, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then Lucy Gray Bard's character, which is played by Rachel Zegler, her whole thing is she's part of like a traveling family that goes throughout the districts that are very poor, like everyone. Mm-hmm. And their way of making money is they're performers. Like they sing okay. folk songs on the Giving street. Circus. Yes, like a circus kind of. And so her character's way of coping with things and getting out of situations is like performing. And she's also a character that's quite unpredictable and you don't really know what her intentions are. Another interesting thing about this um, movie specifically that I thought was kind of funny to see, but wasn't a job that I envied. So all of Pan Am and the Hunger Games takes place in a future America. Oh, really? It's supposed to be like if the world ends and it's like America is the only continent that exists in hundreds of years from now. Okay. So it's supposed to be hundreds of years from now. But because this movie was a prequel to the one that Jennifer Lawrence and, you Mm -hmm. know, they're in, it was supposed to be showing that it's like uh, from the past. And so you could tell they wanted it to be like a period piece and the outfits and the clothing and the style was very reminiscent of like late twenties, like flapper yeah, that era. And then a mix of like the thirties great depression. Interesting. And even like the color scheme but they still had to have technology that was like more advanced than now. Yeah. So they had these like FaceTime kind of machines that they would use these dials that they would look in and they had drones that part of the plot was that the drones didn't really work well. So it was just funny seeing them try to depict futuristic technology, Mm -hmm. but as if it existed in our 1930s, 1920s context. That's funny. I mean, even the original Hunger Games series is like kind of weirdly like that. Yeah. Where it's like they have spaceships, but for some reason all of District 12 is like mining with a pickaxe. Yeah. And like, I think we could probably have a better system for this. Where is Xenon when you need her? Right. Well, and my thing too is I think it's really hard to do futuristic movies and stories. It's really an interesting thing, but you can never do it without it looking kind of corny because it's like you're predicting and I'm not saying Hunger Games is corny at all. I'm just saying like the when you look back at movies and stuff that were like, oh, by like 2020, we're going to have hover cars and everyone's going to yeah. fly. And that doesn't happen, that doesn't, yeah. you know, totally like back to the future. Yeah. Um, But I think the reason they used like this futuristic technology for the capital only is to kind of create this like visual stark contrast that you're supposed to relate with the district people mm, yeah and you don't relate with the capital people like the district people don't yeah. have access to this technology yeah. and they don't use it so you feel like oh they're the working class mm-hmm. like they embody the same experience i do yeah. but the capital has this entire like advanced system and their cities are advanced and everything mm-hmm. so it's like they're like this utopic future society while you're somehow relating to this very modern society 
of yeah. the districts at the same time. Yeah, no, that makes so much sense. And also just how it is in real life. I was looking at a few theories online and one of the theories that Hunger Games fans have about the franchise is Pan Am is supposed to be the country that exists. It's a future America as if all of the other countries in the world were ruined in a huge war. But the idea is that what if that's just propaganda so that the districts don't try to oh, seek out help from outsiders or leave that's because like they're divergent. told that like the world doesn't exist. That's like kind of like the plot of diversion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like telling them like, oh, we don't have that. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. So just a thought, just a thought. Now, I want to get into um, some a, a few more theories about the movie and okay. then we'll get into casting. One that was really interesting to me is Rachel Zegler in an interview that she did. She said the difference between Katniss and then her character Lucy is that Katniss is a fighter who is forced to perform, but Lucy is a performer who is forced, forced to, to fight. fight. That's good. Mm -hmm. And it's so accurately like depicted in the movie. Yeah. And you even saw it with Katniss's character in previous Hunger Games where she didn't seem to like being in like the public eye or like the parades that right. they had to do. She was do. very resistant to it, but she was kind of good at it. Yes. Like she was good at being this rebellious force because she, she kind of was inherently surviving. Uh, yeah, surviving and had this like resent against authority and you know yeah. what I mean? That's that's really, really interesting. Yeah, and you kind of see that in the movie where Lucy Gray, she is a really good performer and really thrives in the lead up to the Hunger Games. Like they have to basically in this version of the Hunger Games, they put all of the um, tributes in a zoo in like a cage and people from the Capitol can come up to the zoo and like look at the them training for their Hunger oh, that's games. crazy. Yeah. And so you see Lucy Gray really thriving in those moments yeah. where there's cameras there and she's singing and they have to perform to get donations. Like mm -hmm. it's like American Idol. Like you want to like call and invoke yeah, for your favorite. No, literally. So she would need donations. So she was really good at like singing songs. And um, but then when the bell goes off and the fighting starts in the Capitol, she's like, like, yeah, she just freezes. Yeah. Right. Um, so that was an interesting thing. And then another one is that um, I know you had kind of mentioned it because you saw a video that the coin, the woman who is in the later Hunger Games franchise who yes. overthrows President Snow. Hunger Games fans have a theory that Lucy Gray is actually the president of District 13 mm -hmm. in the Hunger Games movies. And that is why she has so much like resentment against president snow and why she's so antagonistic against him mm -hmm. and there's like a lot of weird similarities like one of them is how on earth would the president of district 13 know how much the symbol of the mockingjay meant to president coin unless she was the girl yeah like there's just these weird instances where it seems like she intentionally sets up katniss to kind of have weird parallels and resemblances mm -hmm. to Lucy Gray, who's also from District 12. Mm -hmm. And I think also, if you think about it, in the way of the original books, Katniss gets to District 13 because she can escape through the fence and they're right next to each other. So oh. it does make sense, literally geographically, like in the yes. standpoint that if Lucy Gray was to escape, that yeah. she 
would be going to or hiding somewhere. It would be the next district over, which was 13. Yeah. And so I think that it could be true. I've heard theories. And the reason that none of these theories are confirmed, I'm going to get into right after this, but that it could be Lucy Gray's daughter, that if she mm. had a daughter, the age range would line up with presidents. Like that makes the, sense. Um, yeah. And the belief is that Lucy Gray maybe escaped to District 13 at the yeah. end of this movie. And if she had a daughter, then it would be understandable that she would teach the daughter about what totally. President Snow had or done Or even if her. it's not her daughter, just like um, Lucy Gray got to District 13 and told the and story. Told, yeah. yeah. The end of the movie, kind of a spoiler here. It's Lucy Gray and Coriolanus Snow. They're kind of a couple. They're kind of vibing. And they're trying to figure out, like, where to go. She's in District 12. He gets sent to District 12 as a peacemaker, which is, like, their military. And he, the two of them are figuring out what to do. They're hiding in a cabin. And she just, like, leaves and disappears. And he gets mad. He doesn't know where she went. And he's just shooting all the mocking jays and he thinks he's seeing her, but it yeah. could be a hallucination. And he's trying to shoot at her and kill mm-hmm. her because he's so angry that she would leave him in the cabin alone. And so it ends like that. Like the movie, you don't really know yep. what happened. And I think why this is so brilliant, because they've asked Susan Collins, like, are you going to make another book about Lucy Gray and what happens to her? And she hasn't really said whether she's going to or not, but that, I think it's so much better because I left the theater dissatisfied because I was like, we don't know what happened. Yeah. But then I realized, yeah, what I realized is that that's how life is. Mm -hmm. Like there's been so many times where you'll be in a relationship with someone or like dating someone and it just, they just stop talking and you're like, what happened? Like you just never know what happened to them. Most of life doesn't have a satisfying conclusion. Yeah. Or any conclusion at all. Yeah. It's just a bunch of loose ends and that's exactly how the movie felt. And so there could be a chance that Lucy Gray went to district 13 or you just never really know. And maybe there's a possibility that they'll do another book and then another movie. So that's Mm. still in the cards. We don't know yet. And Rachel Zegler has said, like, she hopes that that could be in the cards. Um, So with that being said, I do want to get now into the casting, because I think that was what was really interesting. Speaking of the books, Rachel Zegler in 2021. So this was around the time that she was starting to grow a fan base from West Side Story. And I want to get into her story, her backstory, too, as well. But she tweeted in January of 2021, right when the prequel book came out by Susan Collins, she was talking about how much she loved the book and like how great Susan That's Collins cool. is. Yeah. And then one of her fans replied to her tweet. The fan's name is Nicole Ackman. I'm going to have a screenshot up. And she said, at 5.10 a.m. on January 18th, 2021, Rachel Zegler as Lucy Gray in the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes movie, When. (laughs) Which is crazy because Rachel Zegler, I don't even know, had auditioned for the movie at this point. I don't even know if they were publicly talking about the movie being made, Mm -hmm. like the book being made into a movie. And so that fan like put it out into the world. And then Rachel Zegler ended up getting cast. I'm a big believer that you got to like speak things into existence, even if not from like a 
manifestation standpoint, I'm just like, no one's a mind reader. Yeah. And I think generally you assume most people in your life like know what you're thinking or how you're feeling. And really they're just kind of oblivious. Yes. Like, and, but I think it's like, if you want to be in a Hunger Games movie, you got to tell somebody, yes. you, you know what I mean? If you're an actress, like you're never going to get it unless you tell someone, but you never know. Like someone from the casting team might've seen that tweet or whatever. And yeah, that's how things work. And it truly was one of those things where I feel like Rachel Zegler was like meant to play this role mm -hmm. in so many ways that I'm going to get into. But one, like her voice is she's such a good singer. I'm like pop album when <laughs> <laughs> like we yeah. need it. But no, she's one such a good singer. She had read the Hunger Games book, including the new one, and was a fan of it. Like mm -hmm. she genuinely loved the franchise and now I want to get into why she initially turned down the role. Okay. But I think it's one of those things where when you're truly meant to do something, it finds you. Yeah. And there's no mistake that you can make. There's no, you know, like, yes, you can do bad things, but like there's truly nothing that can stop. Like if you came into this life to do something, mm -hmm. it's always going to find you no matter what. Yeah. Maybe I'm an optimist. So Rachel Zegler initially turned down the role of Lucy Gray. She had been going through the audition process. Mm -hmm. And the way they described the chemistry test that she did with Tom Blythe, the guy who played Coriolanus Snow, was so awkward. And it's why I commend actors <laughs> because they don't have an easy job. Yeah, I could never. They really don't. So what they did is... Right when they started talking to Rachel Zegler, they knew they wanted her to be Lucy Gray. Mm -hmm. And this was the director, Francis Lawrence, talked about it in an interview. Um, it was with Business Insider. Anyways, they had to get onto a Zoom call to do a chemistry read. And I think it was more to see if Tom Blythe would be perfect for Coriolanus Snow. Uh -huh. He was a new actor that just came out of Juilliard in the UK. But he he was like, he's, I think this was his really big role. Yeah. They went on a Zoom call and everyone else turned their cameras off. And Tom Blythe just had to sit there and watch Rachel Zegler sing. Oh, that's weird. It's so awkward. I would be and, so uncomfortable. And that's why I commend actors because that's hard. Oh, I could never walk into any sort of audition room. I know. Imagine, My fear of rejection, I would just cry. Imagine your ability to get a life-changing job that will completely change the trajectory of everything is how you listen to someone sing on zoom <laughs> like just muted you're just like like but uh, like great even on them. zoom not even in real life i know that's crazy even harder on zoom yeah so it because or is he even looking in the right direction it makes me think of that one meme i don't know if you've seen of <laughs> it's like all of these actors got together to sing this like inspirational like it's one of those songs like we are the world we are the children <laughs> and someone goes who told usher he was going to be in the middle and it's almost like the brady bunch where it's like all of these screens pop up and all the singers are just yeah. but usher's in like the bottom corner and he's like <laughs> yeah and they put him in the bottom yes, corner. yes i've seen this video so that just makes me think of like a zoom audition like where do you even look but anyways so they did they loved the they thought they had great chemistry but Rachel Zegler, when she got the role, turned it down because she was currently filming Snow White in London. Mm. And it was like peak pandemic, COVID, yeah. everything shut down. The set was really strict. And Francis Lawrence in an interview said that 
she was in a very isolated, like she, there aren't a ton of people in the Snow White movie. So she was already alone quarantining on set. Yeah. Was away from her family. She's from New Jersey. And she was just so lonely in London. And they told her the filming schedule for Hunger Games. And she would have to go, the shooting for Snow White wraps three days later, they began shooting Hunger Games. So she would have to fly from London to Germany and go even further into Europe for another, like however many months to film the Hunger Games. And she was super homesick. She like was isolated. And yeah, it's also like packing up your entire life in three days and like moving to another country for a few months. Yeah. And so she just wanted to go back home. Mm -hmm. She was like, I can't, like, I have to go home. I can't do this. Yeah. But what happened is unrelated to her, Zegler's boyfriend, Josh Rivera, he was cast as Sejanus in the movie, who's another really big character. He's Snow's best friend. And the Francis Lawrence said it had nothing to do with Rachel. They Mm -hmm. cast him separately. And when she found out through her boyfriend that he was going to do the Hunger Games, oh. she was like, oh, like there's a light. She's like, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe yeah. I could do it if you're also on set with me. So she said that, or Francis Lawrence said they were like scrambling. Like they were about to start shooting in a few days and they didn't have their lead. Because they wanted Rachel Zegler. Yeah. They were like, who's going to be her? No one yeah. can be her. We don't know who we're going to have. So they were scrambling, trying to get a Lucy Gray. And Rachel called him a few days before filming and was like, do you guys still need someone for Lucy Gray? And he was like, yes. (laughs) And Francis Lawrence in the interview didn't say she was so lucky. We hadn't, he goes, we were so lucky that she reached back out. Yeah. That's how good she was in this role. Wow. And so she went to Poland and Germany to film because she was now with her boyfriend. And I just, I don't know. I think it's like such a serendipitous story. It's one of those things that like, you couldn't do that if you tried. Like, what are yeah. the odds? That they and it's also, I mean, even crazy to, like, it's it's admirable that she knew her boundaries well enough to reject it. Like, the lead in a Hunger Games movie. I know. Like, that is such a massive franchise. It's one of those things that, like, yeah. you set yourself up by just doing one of those movies. Yes. And also, her boyfriend, Josh Rivera, he's so good in the movie, too. So, it, it clearly was not, like, a pity, like, oh, we just need your girlfriend. It yeah. was like he got the role separate from her. And it just makes so much sense. Also said, I was just listening to her on a podcast called Ladies Night where she was talking about filming Hunger Games. And she said that because she was filming Snow White in the lead up, all of the other actors that would be in the arena with her fighting, mm-hmm. they had weeks of stunt training to get Whoa. ready. But she didn't because yeah. she was. And she said that she thinks it kind of helps Help. I was going to think that, too, because it does really depict the help, like helpless. I've never fought in my life. Yeah. Now I'm in a death match. That's exactly Look. what she said. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She said that sh- she was just there dodging everyone because she had no idea what yeah. the stunts were. And yeah. so they just filmed her genuine reaction to being like, oh, my God, like everyone's coming at me. What do I do? Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So the, that's really interesting. And then I want to just talk about, too, is the um, I want to get into kind of her first origin and then we'll get into the Jacob Elordi and Rachel Zegler comparisons because mm-hmm. I know we have some thoughts. So. One of my favorite stories that I always look into is like actors and getting their first role. I know Millie Bobby Brown is really kind of inspiring because she was trying to make it in acting. She'd been in like one film, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't like a big breakout role when she was a kid. 
And she was getting ready to pack up her bags and leave LA with her family and go back to the UK because she wasn't getting anything, anything. And she really wanted this one role in Game of Thrones that ended up going to um, the the actor in The Last of Us. Duh, I know exactly who you're talking about. It was supposed to, so it was between the two of them. Wow, she does look like Millie Bobby Brown. Kind yeah, of. right. <laughs> That's funny. Yes, and it didn't go to Millie Bobby Brown. Wow. And so Millie Bobby Brown was crying and upset, and was getting ready to just leave and go back to the UK, and then her agent was like, "Hey, like, can you do a really quick?" Uh, tape for this show called Stranger Things and she'd been crying all day so she's like fine like so she (laughs) filmed the audition for Eleven and it was a very raw emotion and she had Mm -hmm. to cry in the scene and that was the role that she got and changed wow yeah see sometimes life just like throws bad things at you because it's gonna clear the way for something better exactly like I'm a big believer in that sometimes you feel like like a situation is crumbling or something bad is happening and you're like why why yeah. is there this? It has to cleanse the palate. Exactly. Yeah. It's like it's... when you're like smelling perfumes and you have to smell like the coffee when you're like, but right. it like cleanses the right. palate. Right. Exactly. Because like had she gotten that role, she can't audition for the other one. Yeah. And Stranger Things is like, the lead in Stranger Things is way bigger. You, yeah. Yes, exactly. And so for Rachel Zegler, she was from New Jersey. She grew up doing musicals and she had a very musical training. And she said that she was a wedding singer on weekends, just trying to make ends meet. Mm. And she even went in for an audition for a Broadway musical in New York. And it was super discouraging because during her audition, the casting directors took that time to order lunch amongst themselves. So they weren't even listening to her. Oh my God. See, I, I could never audition like this. There's actors are so I brave. I would just start crying on the stage. I know. I know. And so she was super disheartened. But a week later, she found out that she was cast in Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. Wow. Mind you, wasn't a big name from this. She sent in a YouTube link of her just <laughs> reading that. the script. Yeah. An unlisted YouTube link to a random email that they had on the website. And 30,000 other girls auditioned for that role. And she got chosen. So wow. she found out a week after that Broadway audition that she got picked for a Steven Spielberg movie. That's crazy. Yeah. So that leads me to the Jacob Elordi and Rachel Zegler comparison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she did an interview on a red carpet where they asked her why she took a role in this DC Shazam movie. Kind okay. of like they ask all of them, why did you want the role? Right. Like, and they're always like, I love the character. It was like, I love the, right. the cast, everything. But she had a very straightforward answer and was like, I needed work. Like, I needed a job. And she went on to say, it, it that got clipped where she was just like, I need a job. End scene. Yeah. But in it, she said, West Side Story hadn't come out yet. And so mm. I was just trying to get any work I could because she wasn't a household name yet. Uh-huh. So that got clipped. She was reamed, dragged through the mud. Jacob Elordi went viral because Lilo and he... Stitch. Yes. And the kissing booth thing where he got asked, how do you pick your roles? And he said, I play what they give me. I need a job. And everyone's, oh, he's so hashtag real king behavior. I have like lots of thoughts about this from multiple standpoints. I definitely think there's some bit like the big elephant in the room misogyny like to it like i definitely think that's a huge part of it and intersectional because she's 
she's POC and he's white. And it's that's, like, there's yeah, other that's what I, I was going to get to was like, I think that that is part of it specifically for the Disney situation, like the Snow White situation. I one, I think that she like some of the clips, she was going a little hard yeah. in dissing Snow White. And like, I'm not going to say Snow White's the best story ever told, mm -hmm. but people do have this weird obsession with Disney stories. Yeah. Like, I think it's something about how like you infantilize the character because mm -hmm. when you saw it, you were also five. Yeah. So you kind of like relate to it in that way. But it's also so like, I just do not get why there's such a weird resentment against any POC by POC person playing a fictional character i know like what it's not real like it's not even a real person like it is just there's no other reason than it's just like subtle racism i think oh of yeah when people do that because like also like halle berry in little mermaid eight just so good like i you you can't like, like the way that she changed like the tune in part of your world like her the way that she sang it was so unique. Yeah, and, and not even amazing. even beyond just the singing, like yeah. the acting. Like Ariel's really supposed to be like really young and naive, yes. and I felt like she really did that well. And like, yeah, I don't understand what the the weird criticism was. And it I was think, before the scenes came out, so people weren't even critiquing her as an actor; they were critiquing yeah. her as a person. Right. Well, I think it's because she. The way she gave some interviews implied that they were changing the story a lot. Oh, for Snow White. For Snow yeah. White, where she was like, this is not your mom's Snow White <laughs> and blah, blah, blah. And like, yeah. and was like talking about how there's like, uh, like kind of like misogyny in the story and, you know, like the, the dwarves, yeah. but also Snow White's like, I don't think she said this, but like Snow White is kind of a matriarch to the door. I don't know. It's yeah. a weird thing. But like, and I think people just saw that and were like, so eager especially hyper conservative people yeah. are so eager to like this is ridiculous we mm -hmm. you people are going woke culture is going to you know what i mean like they love to toot that yeah. horn so and then the fact that she is a woman and poc on top of it is yeah. like the perfect storm for i even saw like race racist takes on her skin tone where they're like snow white so, so I was like, hello. She's not real. It's not real. It, she is not like, real. She, she was made using like get probably a Crayola it. crown. Like it's, <laughs> it's I don't real. get it. It's just weird. Like I also cannot understand why people so feel so personally attacked in those situations. I know. Like who cares? Just watch the original if you think the story yeah, is like, that Yeah, like if you don't valuable. like it, don't watch it. Yeah. Like, nobody's forcing you. Yeah. And going back to the Jacob Elordi thing, like – I think part of it is a bit in the way that the way it was delivered. Yeah. Like Jacob Elordi kind of delivered it in a bit more of a nonchalanty way mm -hmm. where she kind of was very direct about it. Yeah. And it, I guess to some people it felt like antagonizing a bit, but I also like, especially for the Shazam thing, I don't think people understand that like, just because you're an actor does not mean you're instantly rich. Yeah. Like, or just because you've gotten yeah. one, like it's her second role ever. Like mm -hmm. she, she's not rich. Also there's a lot of the times you don't get paid all of the money up yeah. front. It comes in checks. It comes in residuals. It comes in month mm -hmm. to month. Like, so her saying, yeah, I needed to take this job. Like it's a DC movie. It's not a deep character that she's going to connect to. Like yeah. it's a like the whole point of it is to be superficial and yeah. and like borderline science fiction, action, adventure, etc. Like it's not a deep plot. Yeah. So she's not going to have a deep attachment to the character. Yeah. So like that's when I think it's like okay, chill. You know what I yes, mean? Yes, I agree. And I think Jacob Elordi had the benefit of. Uh, also, maybe because he was already established 
a bit more mm -hmm. is another thing that I think. Also, I'm not trying to say that like this is not because of misogyny and racism. I do believe that's what it is. Mm -hmm. I'm also like just trying to like paint the picture yes. of all the multiple factors layers. of why I think people like I think by that point, Jacob Lori had been in the kissing booths. He'd been in Euphoria, his biggest mm -hmm. role. And then then he was like, you know, yeah, once he was taken seriously, it's like, OK to do that. But I think when you're in this like not OK to do that, but the in the public. Yeah. Sense. And I think like because she's so new. It's like, well, you've only had two movies and you're yeah. making fun of both of them. Like, shut. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think that's why people are weirdly offended. But yeah, again, like, why? Why are you so personally attacked? Yeah. By, like somebody saying that they have a job to do. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see the how Jacob Elordi said that he didn't know much about Elvis before filming? Yeah. And that he had only heard of it from Lilo yeah. and Stitch. But I think this is kind of a genius move. I said it was a PR move. Uh, yeah. Because it sets yourself up perfectly. If you lower the bar, either you do good as Elvis, which he did. And everyone's like, whoa, he was so good. Like, he's such yeah. a great actor. He could portray this character when he knew so little about it. But then if you suck in the role, it's like you're lowering the bar early. So you did then all nobody, So then everybody's like, oh, well, he just didn't know Elvis. And like, he wasn't, you know, blah, blah, blah. And yeah. I think you see the reverse with Austin Butler. Like, Austin Butler set the bar so high. Like, I didn't talk to my family for three years because I was doing interviews, acting and character. Mm -hmm. And I had to change my voice, blah, blah, blah. So like Austin Butler wasn't bad, but I didn't watch this and was like, wow, you're really, thank God you didn't talk to your family for three years. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I was like, I think you would have been fine talking to your family. Like it was yeah. just a role. And I like, you know what I mean? Like, I think that's also why Austin Butler like had reverse so criticism of what's happening with Jacob Elordi or Jacob Elordi is like celebrated for not knowing anything yes. and Austin Butler set the bar so high weaponized like, confidence yeah <laughs> literally like I think also that it was a strategic move because Jacob Elordi played a very negative portrayal of Elvis in the movie yeah but Austin Butler's was a very positive portrayal and I bet you Jacob Elordi and his team whether it was really created or not they probably did give him this narrative of you're playing somewhat of a villain. You yeah. can't go into and being he's like, really I good love at playing him. villains. Yeah. And a kind of a villain you root for. Um, and he probably couldn't go into it being like gung ho. Like, I love this guy. Yeah. Also hot take. Like, I watched the Elvis with Austin Butler the night after we like we did watched. You? I hated it. <laughs> it wasn't that good. Everything felt like it was filmed in a studio. Like none of the scenes seemed real. Yeah, I mean that is kind of Baz Luhrmann's like style a bit. Okay. Like it's very like that. Um, I couldn't tell if it's because I my took an edible. But I was like, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's it. Okay. But uh, my problem with the Elvis movie was it was so focused like it's just clearly an elvis movie written by an elvis fan yeah. not like uh let's actually depict his life story yeah. both the good and the bad and that's why also what i was really telling you after i saw priscilla was it felt like they were two parts of the same movie like they mm -hmm. really are good together and i don't think that was intentional at all but it really yeah. um like the priscilla movie fills in a lot of the blanks of the elvis movie in terms of a lot of like they talk about the drug use and stuff like that or substance abuse, mm -hmm. but they don't like, they never go specifically. It's mm -hmm. just like, Oh, I got to visit the doctor again. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he has these weird vague lines that are like clearly referring to it. But then when you see the Priscilla movie, it's clearly such a big part of his life. Yeah. And 
um, like, I, I don't know. I wish that they had depicted more of that because I think that that's like a really important part of why he died so early even yeah. and stuff too. Like it's, it's part of the tragedy of Elvis was like, he was so famous that he was kind of taken advantage of and couldn't, didn't know how to handle it. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't a, not a, a good person pretty clearly, but I do still think a lot of the things that happened to him are sad and tragic and, and not yeah. okay. And it just felt like, uh, let's only talk about the good things. Yeah. You know what it, I mean? Yeah. And, and yeah, the, oh, yeah, the, I just, mm, I didn't like it. It just felt very a one dimensional depiction of him. And there I like will no- say though, I do think Jacob Elordi had an easier role. Yeah. Because he never really had to, depict any sort of other emotion besides being the bad guy yeah like he kind of and honestly not even that he was like a big part of it was to be very distant Mm -hmm. you know like he would be in a scene with priscilla but he's talking he's with all the boys and she's just like kind of sitting next to him at the table and i felt i did feel like austin butler had to like depict the scene when his mom died you know what i mean and like that's a lot harder to do as an actor or like the depression he felt when his he thought his music career was over and he was literally sent overseas like and enlisted like that's a hard thing i wouldn't know how to act that out you know what i mean so i do think that like when people make the comparison between austin butler and jacob elordi it's a little unfair because jacob elordi didn't have to do any of that really emotionally challenging work yeah but i do still think jacob elordi was better that kind of ties up this part about I wanted to talk about casting and then tied into Rachel Zegler versus Jacob Elordi, who got a lot of backlash, both of, or sorry, she did for saying Mm -hmm. the same thing that both of them said. But now that we just have like a few minutes left at the end, something that is very relevant that we got, I got comments about, I'm sure you did too. It's been the talk of the town was just to end it on this note and let us know in the comments too, if there's ever things that are happening in pop culture that are very Please. recent that you want us to kind of touch on the last few minutes of every pod. Yeah, that'd be fun. I'd love for this to be like a conversational, like yeah. Wendy Williams hot topics is on my favorite, but like <laughs> not in a gossipy <laughs> way, just that. more in our perspective yeah. behind the scenes in the industry. Matt Rife. You know, what's so funny. I talked about this in a TikTok, and I want to say the podcast, but I, uh, you guys can look at my TikTok. People accurately guessed it in the comments. He went on a podcast that okay. we both love and we watch, and it's two girl Yeah, hosts. I know you're talking about. Their vibe was so weird with him in a way that they have not acted towards other guests. And they were hyping up Matt Reif coming on their podcast. Yeah. And he's very similar in the way they were hyping him up and talking about him to Trevor Wallace, another yeah. comedian. But their dynamic with Matt Reif compared to Trevor Wallace was so odd. Different. And it almost seems like they were closed off and almost afraid in a way or like something maybe happened. And I don't know. That's why I'm not saying the name of the podcast because I don't want to put words in their mouth. You never know. But they just seem so closed off, like something had happened behind the scenes that put them off to him. Maybe. I mean, I also think he's just kind of off-putting, <laughs> an off-putting guy. Yeah. Like I, the whole Matt Rife thing is so interesting to me as to how this like perfect storm brood for him to like be experiencing this cancellation one obviously the special is terrible like yeah. you've seen the things he said they're crazy like yeah. the domestic violence. when i Off saw the, bat, the clip about the domestic when he was like you shouldn't have come to work and then he was like oh if she knew how to cook she wouldn't have a black eye and he's like i just wanted to see if you were a fun audience fun what's fun about that 
What's, You're not what's funny. fun about beating women? Could I you please know. elaborate more? Yeah, and let's dive in there. So that's like, obviously, the big, you know, 10,000 pound elephant in the room. Another thing that I think is really interesting about this Matt Rife situation is for most people, it is the first time they've ever seen him actually do Boom. comedy. All of his TikToks are crowd work. And he's actually talked about this in interviews. And he says that he does that because he's like, well, if I show the material of the show in in they won't 20 TikToks, then yeah. the show material doesn't change. So if they see 20 TikToks of my show, then they pay for my show. They're hearing jokes that they've already heard mm -hmm. before. And that I think is actually a genuinely great point mm -hmm. as to why he's like, I don't want to post mm -hmm. clips of the show. However, because of the fact that he only does crowd work where he's really only interacting with women because he knows how to use his looks to like be funny and you know flirt yeah. it's like i mean it is funny to like to see like a younger man like flirt, like and a mom in the audience yeah. like jokingly flirting with each other and stuff like that like it it's amusing but because of that like no one actually knew really if he was funny in this like scripted sense yeah. right like clearly he had like the wit yeah. to banter with somebody but i think that is just this whole other thing where it's like because he was doing this audience banter where it really leaned into his looks where he was pretty much only talking to women he built this very very large female audience and then when his true values came out that was very misogynistic very racist ableist oh like every every ist you can think of check them all off check them all off and like that people it was like this unexpected like i think that's why it got mm. so much attention so quickly because so much people did not have this perception of him prior mm -hmm. like to them he was just this funny flirty guy mm -hmm. you know what i mean like i i just think that that's interesting whereas yeah. something like uh other comedians who are like notoriously terrible at the very least they get this audience because like they're actually funny well, they're also terrible from day one. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the people that are going to go to their show are okay with whatever domestic giant violence joke or whatever they're yeah. going to make. I, yeah. You make such great points. And I think that the Matt Reif situation is one of the few examples as people who work in marketing. And mm -hmm. my whole thing is your life can change from TikTok. And we yeah. always say that one quote that's like, it takes 10 years to be an overnight success. Mm -hmm. And I'm always rooting for people who have worked at a craft and blowing up overnight quotations mm -hmm. because of TikTok or whatever app is going to come next. But I think that Matt Reif felt like a really good example of, yes, he's worked at his craft for a very, very long time. Yeah. But he almost is like the downside of TikTok and internet fame. Yes. Where he got this huge opportunity like Netflix before uh -huh. he was trained enough to know what to do with and it. And fumbled it. And there are probably so many comedians out there who would freaking kill a netflix special and do so good but they don't know how to do tiktok yeah they don't know how to do you they don't know yep. how to do a podcast they're never gonna get the opportunity yep. and i think he's such a good example of biting off more than you can chew and i mean that in the nicest way possible biting off more than you can chew because your audience gave you an opportunity that you were not ready for yeah and i hate when a situation like this happens because then i think for a while the industry gets really closed Jaded. off to working with any sort of creator like mm -hmm. oh the math right the matt rife special failed i guess we just shouldn't do comedy with tiktokers and it's like no you just shouldn't do comedy with matt rife yeah. like this is i felt this way really strongly about the hype house show yeah where i felt like it, it like it was just a bad show right like it just wasn't there just wasn't really a plot 
to yeah. it, right? Like whatever writers, whatever. It just wasn't good. No, and no hate to any of the people involved. Yeah. But then I felt like it's like people are like, see, this is why TikTokers shouldn't be mm-hmm. on TV. And I'm like, no, I think that there are some really talented people yeah. out there who make content about acting and are actors or or um are just funny and amusing and, and would be great in an unscripted series like mm-hmm. that because they just are quick and have that banter. But I'm like, just because it wasn't this group doesn't mean you need to make an assumption about the entire population of that like career yeah. or creator, whatever. And that's why I think it it sucks when you see these situations because it ends up hurting like the entirety of the industry mm-hmm. in ways that, you know, like you're not going to see somebody get, you're not going to see a TikToker get a big comedy special for six months to a year. I guarantee I you. know. Like you won't. Like maybe there will be a few that come out that have already been filmed and stuff. Like I know Trevor Wallace actually has one on Amazon Prime right mm-hmm. now. And I don't know. It's just like, that's what I really think about in situations like this. It's like, it sucks that one person messes it up for everybody else who's working hard to get there. Even though I don't think it was her fault directly, Lily Singh, her late night show is such a good example of that happening. They haven't touched a YouTuber with a 10 foot pole since that. Because again, I don't think it was her fault at all. I think various factors set her up to fail. Yeah. But it hurt the influencer world because it was this proof i guess to the industry that like an internet audience couldn't translate over Mm -hmm. totally like another thing i felt this about too is like when all the james charles situations Mm -hmm. came out and then all of these like it was a good thing that there was like a male cover girl at one point and stuff like that was cool it was cool to advertise that like men in makeup it's just like this one person isn't good that doesn't mean that you should also write off Bretman Rock or whatever you know what I mean like there are other good people out there Mm -hmm. and you see a lot of the times like after the James Charles situation you know a lot of these makeup companies pulled back for a while and you know I don't know totally well I guess we'll end there this was like such a great episode I loved kind of the conversational of Me too. the it was, end as well. It was kind of like a, a this almost like this week in pop culture yes. recap. Like we talked about Hunger Games, we talked about Jacob mm-hmm. Lordy, we talked about Saltburn, and we talked about Matt Rife. And yeah. I feel like that's like what's been going on this week. Yes. Marketing experts react. I want to like make that like a real series for us because Me there's so too. many react series, but there's no marketing experts Me react. Too. So with all of that being said, again, thank you guys so much for watching or listening. However you guys consume us, we appreciate you so much. If you guys give us a rating, if you send us to a friend who also loves pop culture and marketing as much as you do and we do, we'd love to all chat. Kiki, yeah. Let's Kiki. Sub to the channel if you haven't. Yeah. And thank you all for stopping in. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye.